are listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with Nate and Ray. <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. It's Nate. And it's Ray. And we're Cheers. back. We're back after a week break uh, for another episode. And Ray, I was really excited about our last episode because it was another interview. And I feel like the interview went really well. I'm starting to get more comfortable when we do these things. They feel like less, I don't know. The first time we did that interview with John, I was so stressed and like uncomfortable, but now it's like easing my way into it. It just gets easier and easier. Yeah, same. I feel like I'm finally starting. Well, I, now I feel like I'm actually watching these films differently so I can talk about them. So it's kind of cool, too. Yeah, it's almost like you sit down with a notepad and you're like, OK, what? Like, rather than just be like, I'm taking in the movie and saying it's good because now you're like three for three with taking them by surprise <laughs> <laughs> with your questions. You've got to like you got to keep up. You got to keep up that shock factor. I feel like I'm, I'm like I'm setting up a standard actually it's funny the other day i was talking to someone at work we were talking about the movie warm bodies Mm -hmm. i mean that's a pretty like schlocky like fun movie Mm -hmm. and uh, this girl that i was talking to she was like "Ah, i didn't care for that movie it was too hokey and too cheesy with the romance and i was like well it's a retelling of romeo and juliet and she like it's like i broke her for a second she was like (laughs) what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious. She like you you just took her completely by surprise. No, that's that's funny and it's always interesting. I think that's what I love the most about movies anyway is just like the idea that every single person that watches something is going to take something completely different away from it and perceive it differently. That's like, uh, I know we talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but like the whale that came out last year, I feel like that movie really was interesting as far as like hearing the multitude of opinions and how it affect each person individually so differently. And that's, what's so cool about having like this format and talking to filmmakers is like hearing a little bit about their perspective sort of shifts your perspective a little bit as to like the approach of how things were made and how certain scenes were shot. And that adds more to it. Like I loved talking to Matt uh, and Dave where you kind of heard like it was really like living that tour lifestyle just like riding around in the bus and all the things that they were doing it makes the movie connect to you even more yeah because you realize like oh they're not just like sitting in some green room with hors d'oeuvres coming to you and they're like all these fancy stuff like they're actually out there grinding and doing a passion project which that, according to them, they're not even getting any money for. That that scene they talked about where they had to rush all the camera equipment outside to get the establishing shot was so good. That's just like hearing that. And like, you know, it's funny because I feel like it's it's translated through all of our interviews, but like our first one with John and hearing him like essentially say it was a miracle that the movie got made. And like the every single thing that happened was like, holy shit, how is this happening? How is this happening? And it's been really interesting to hear from three like indie level filmmakers, like how much of it is just like, holy shit, this perfect, the perfect time and the perfect place and the perfect thing happened, which makes me always want to just go back and revisit these movies right away. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, I actually want to pick up 
Uncle Pecker hit like on physical media now. So do I. I don't have a Blu-ray copy of it, but I'm. I, that's one that I wish that they'd put out on Arrow Video because I actually saw um, the Adams the their movie before Hellbender, the deeper you dig, has an Arrow Blu-ray release. Yeah, it does. I feel like these movies are perfect for Arrow. Yeah, hundred percent. I think they fit perfectly, and I I want to get a copy of My Heart Can't Beat unless you tell it to on Blu-ray too. Yeah, you definitely I don't, want to jump on those now. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. don't either. I don't have any of them. But yeah, well, so that's it's been cool. Yeah, well, when you hear the hard work that they put in it, you're just like, well, now I want to support you even more because you did the thing. You, you're you doing the damn thing, you know? And they're also excited about making other stuff, which is what I'm excited for. Like, knowing that each one of them has like, oh, well, even the Adams has something that's completed. But like to hear, oh, I'm super excited to make this next thing. It, it just gets me pumped up. Like, I can't wait. And I'm excited to have them back on when their new projects release. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. So that's us kind of diving in a little bit to these interviews. It's just crazy. to. It's still wild to me that people agree to do it. It's like, I mean, yeah. we're just guys <laughs> talking about, like, whenever they're like, yeah, we'd love to talk to you. I'm like, holy shit, really? <laughs> I, I just, I just real quick, I just, I saw a story from Brett Goldstein, you know. I love from- Brett. <laughs> <laughs> from Ted Lasso. So he, for, for those who don't know, he did a, um, he created a show um, with Bill Lawrence, who also created Ted Lasso called Shrinking. And they jokingly said that they wanted to pitch it to Harrison Ford. And I guess, long story short, Brett Goldstein got a meeting with Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford was like, I love the script. And Brett Goldstein <laughs> and Brett Goldstein look at looked at um Harrison Ford right in the eyes and he said for shrinking. <laughs> and then and then and then um Harrison Ford is like, yeah, it's such great storytelling. I just love it. And then he looked at him again, he he like pointed the finger at the script as like for shrinking. <laughs> <laughs> I I love Brett would be someone I would love to talk to. I know that's oh, like, yeah. a huge, but like I watched recently about when they were coming up with Ted Lasso and that he was writing the script and Brett was like, I'm Roy Kent. <laughs> and they're like, what? And he's like, I have to play this character. And Jason Sudeikis was like, really? You think you think so? And he's like, yes, I am. And he is that character. Well, you want to know? You want to know a fun little fact? The uh, actor I forget his name who plays uh, oh Phil Dunster who plays uh, Jamie Tart. He actually originally auditioned to play Leslie. The seriously, yeah. That's unreal. I I have become so obsessed with that show. You have no idea. Oh, are are you're cut up? Yes, I absolutely love it. Yeah, I I I bit Jess and I binged the first two seasons in like three days because we just sat on the couch and it was like and it's almost kind of a shame because that show is so wholesome and beautifully written that you just don't want it to end yeah but but it's also really dark but dark Mm -hmm. and like but dark in like a real way not like oh we're gonna depress you but it's like no this is stuff that actually happens in real life well, yeah, if they just made if they just made Ted's character like a cheese ball, like lovable guy with no sort of depth, it wouldn't be as interesting. But giving him like a dark side where he has rough shit in his past and he's working on his mental health and all that makes him so likable. And what I really love about the show is that's every character. They don't like every character has been focused on and given some sort of arc. They don't leave any stone unturned, which is impressive for a TV show that's only two seasons in. 
Well, what I love, like Roy Kent is my favorite. And the reason mm. being is not only because he's hilarious, but like you have this macho, like hairy, big, tough guy with a very sensitive background. And to be able to tackle that toxic masculinity within him and how he's trying to like be this like manly force, but also this very like sweet and thoughtful guy that dichotomy is really cool that episode and towards the tail end of the second season might even been the finale when he hugged jamie after his dad destroyed him it was like that moment of vulnerability was so well written and just how he you can tell that like their relationship as much as they've both been pawning after the same woman for so long it really is kind of like a father-son dichotomy a little bit like hit roy being in the in the league for so long and being such an established player and jamie like you can tell he wants that he wants to be that way and that kind of a leader and like him growing up has been a really great arc too i feel like going from that really immature character to now he's really lovable like he's a really yeah. great character ever since he was a sexy little baby <laughs> and also one of my favorite characters in the whole show shout out to juno temple because her performance as keely has been incredible like the shifts that that character's gone through and i think the way that her and rebecca's friendship has played out has been a great portrayal of female I friendship love that combination that combination of those two it's great. I like the way that it's portrayed. It, everything just feels so real as wholesome as the show is and how like kind of cheesy it could come across. It never does. It all feels real. That, I, I love it. I'm so glad you love it. But hey, what now that we're talking about awesome female characters? Yes, no it's problem. a perfect transition. Also, I do want to say one more thing about Ted Lasso. Apparently no one in Europe knows what a Hallmark movie is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, they're I terrible, love, but they're great. That's what Jason Sudeikis' little like sidebar, which also, what a brilliant performance. Jason Sudeikis is amazing in that show. We could do a whole Ted Lasso podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our episode by episode breakdown. No, so yeah, speaking of strong female characters, uh, it's Women's History Month. And Ray and I decided that we wanted to do an entire episode of the podcast dedicated to talking about some of our favorite female directors, actresses, composers, whoever and whatever we want to talk about. Because as we said, when we talked about Black History Month, you know, Ray or I, neither one are a woman. We were not assigned female at birth. But it's so important to acknowledge the powerhouse women in this industry and kind of the hurdles that they've had to jump over through the years, because as great of an industry that has been built up now and how many opportunities have been out there for women now, comparatively to even like 20 or 30 years ago, we're still pretty behind. Oh, yeah. I actually, um, just a little caveat, my the list that I came up with is like 90% directors and one composer. I actually purposefully left actresses out of my list because I want to talk about the women behind the camera. And I it's feel funny, like most of my list is also directors. Oh, perfect. Well, the thing <laughs> yeah. is, it's like, I can tell somebody Jodie Foster or Angelina Jolie, and like you immediately put a face to that. And we have talked about all these actresses in the past that this time I wanted to actually give a bigger focus to the ones behind the camera, because I think that's maybe even more important because they're the ones writing and telling the story. 
And it's also harder to get that gig. I feel I feel like now you're getting more women that are being approached and saying like, hey, take on this project or hey, do this thing. And it's it's cool that they're getting those opportunities. But like we're hoping to shine a light to say we want more of those voices out there. We want more people out there who identify as female that are making films and that are, you know, kind of in the strides to make material that resonates with everyone. And I've got, I've, I compiled a pretty decent list, but I'm excited, Ray. Do you want to start? Do you want to give us your first film or director you'd like to talk about? I do. Um, and I feel like this one is going to be a pretty obvious one. Yeah. Um, maybe not by name, but when I name drop some of her movies, it'll make more sense. Um, her name is Catherine Biglow. Yes. Near Dark. <laughs> near Dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's not just Near Dark. I mean, she did Point Break, which is mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, I recently watched a movie called Strange Days that she mm -hmm. directed, which is beautiful. I love that movie so much. I believe she was and correct me if I'm wrong and anybody listening, if I'm wrong, please correct me. I believe she was the first female to win the Academy Award for directing. I think that is correct for the Hurt Locker. Yeah, for the Hurt yeah, Locker. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, But I wanted to focus mostly on like the these three movies that I, my, my, the three movies that I love, like Near Dark being the first one. I mean, this is awesome, like cool vampire movie. Yeah, like this, it's this neo-Western like horror film about vampires starting, you know, you have Adrian Hasdar, Jenny Wright, you know, the late Bill Paxton. I mean, this movie was so good. And it was weird because it's not a movie that performed all that well. No, it didn't. And it, and hard it, to and find it was, now. It was hard to find. Now that um Shudder got the rights for it, that, you know, we have it now, but for the longest time, it was so hard to find. And then obviously you have Point Break with, you know, Mr. Keanu Reeves and the late Patrick Swayze, another great movie, which feature Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. <laughs> um, another great, like, just noir crime action movie. And then Strange Days. I don't know if you're familiar with Strange Days. I'm not. Strange Days is this. Uh, so I okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Strange Days because it's a great film starring um, Ray Fiennes and Angela Bassett and Juliette Lewis. Mm -hmm. And base the main plot of it is that Ray Fiennes is an ex cop who now kind of has turned to the black market and he sells. He calls them experiences. It's like he calls them squid, which he they go into, but it's an electronic device that you put in your in your head. And you connect these little discs. And what people do is that he pays people to live certain experiences, whether it would be sexual, uh, crime experience, some form of experience. He records them in this drive and they and people put it in these machines that go on their heads and they connect to their cerebral cortex and they're able to relive somebody else's memory slash experience where they can feel, see, hear everything that the other person has felt that's amazing i actually just looked that up it looks awesome and i didn't realize it was co-written by james cameron yeah well apparently uh biglow was married to james cameron at one point and they divorced after she beat him with her locker at the oscars <laughs> he was like no my blue people movie was better <laughs> um, what are you doing catherine <laughs> so 
so yeah, um, Strange Days is an amazing movie. Again, a movie that almost ruined her career because it did horrible in the box office as well. Um, again, sensing a a uh, a pattern here of a strong female director who just keeps getting crapped on with those, you know, <laughs> people showing up to the seats. But Strange Days is an amazing movie that unfortunately it's a, another one that was super hard to find until now that's on HBO Max. It's almost like a, it takes place during 1999, so right about the turn of the century. Uh, and Ray Fiennes is phenomenal. I've always loved Ray Fiennes. The writing and directing that she did on that movie and the con- the cerebral concept that she came up with this for this like noir situation is so cool. And I can't recommend Strange Days enough. And you know, it's cool that you brought that up because like, it's cool to see a woman who is a genre filmmaker that is like making these like high octane action movies like Point Break or like a noir-esque vampire film. Like, not just like, I'm making a romance or like, you know, bucketing into like, you know, the Nora Ephrons of the world or not saying that that's not a needed genre, but it is so cool. Like, I guarantee you at the time period Point Break came out, there was a lot of people who probably thought that was directed by a man. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you look at the rest of her catalog, I mean, you have... Uh, the Hurt Locker, Serial Dart 30, so she, The Weight of Water. I mean, she has a lot of war movies, a lot of like movies that take place around the war. Her movies, like you said, could be misconstrued. Oh, some buff dude directed this. And I was like, no, there's some like badass women out there directing some badass movies. Which is so awesome. And I, I love when, uh, you know, because sexism has existed in film for a very long time. And so it's really cool to see movies that are helmed by women that people probably would not assume are helmed by women, which are amazing. But I actually, for my first director, I want to jump to is another director who directed a vampire movie. I thought that was a perfect segue. And I want to talk about uh, her name is Anna Lily Amirpour. She's a Persian uh, British-born Iranian-American film director. Did and she, she do A Woman Walks Alone at Night? Yeah, Girl Walks Home Alone at oh. Night, yes. And I wanted to talk about that. I have not seen her other films, but she also made the neon-produced movie The Bad Batch with Suki Waterhouse and Keanu Reeves and Jason Momoa. Oh, I want to see and, that. Yeah, and she had a new movie uh, that was released, I believe... 2021 called Mona Lisa and the Bad Moon, which I still want to see. And she did a segment on Guillermo del Toro's new uh, show. Cabinet of Curiosities. Yeah, it's called The Outside was the one that she did. Um, But I'm mostly focusing on A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night because it's the only film in her filmography that I have seen. But I was completely enamored with this film when I watched it the first time because of the fact your lead character is is a woman that is like dressed in traditional Arabic clothing. Like she's wearing a headdress and she's a vampire. And it's like she's walking through the streets of um, Iran and like picking off like evil people off the streets. Like she's, when she kills people for blood, she's killing like thieves and murderers and like all of these different people. And she ends up running into this guy who his father is addicted to heroin. He's got his family, like in all of these like financial debt problems. And the two of them are both struggling with different parts of their lives and they meet each other 
at a really unconventional point in their lives and they form this bond and music is the through line of the movie and it's so, the music in it is incredible the score is amazing the original music that's used it's shot in beautiful black and white there's actually moments in this funny enough that make me think of david lynch that yeah. are really surreal and kind of abstract and i don't know there's something about this movie that it's just like mesmerizing from the very first frame. And I, I don't know. I love filmmakers who obviously, you know, she was born in England, but she has this heritage from this part of the world. And she wanted to make a genre movie that takes place in a place that is important to her. And I think that's really cool because, you know, when you think of vampire movies, you're always thinking like, in the woods or like in a castle or like you know there's these very with the exception of some films you're thinking very stereotypical and so it's cool to me to think that you're like in a, kind of like a dingy looking desert town that like yeah it feels almost like a western oh yeah well i love the fact that they chose black and white too mm -hmm. oh it's it's haunting the bl blood in black and white movies look so good because of just how deep and dark the color is well, and then, like, because a lot, you know, as the film entails, a girl walks home alone at night, you know, it, it this takes place predominantly at nighttime. So, like, the blacks are very deep, and it just feels like these, like, dark streets can go on forever because it's just, they're so deep and dark. It's fantastic. Well, yeah, and I, lo I love the fact that the style, like you said, the, it's very stylized, and I do see that Lynchian vibe to it for sure especially that dance sequence yeah. <laughs> it's so it's so weird and out of place but like i don't know the one word i would use to describe the movie is mesmerizing it really is you're just entranced in this world from the very first shot and i think all the performances are phenomenal and i'm sad that i haven't seen any of her other films because these this movie is just so damn good it is really good and um I love that she rides around in the skateboard. Yes, that's one of my, and I love like that when she kills the guy and she's going through his CD collection. I'm like, oh, I feel that. If I was a vampire, I'd be and killed someone with a record collection. I'd be like, let's see what you got here. <laughs> I've always, I've always said that that if I were like a ghost or something, I like I wouldn't go haunting places. I'm like, ooh, who's playing tonight? I go see it for free. But yeah, I, I just, I think this movie's fantastic and I'm excited to check out more of her stuff. So <laughs> I'm going to go with another director who also did a vampire movie. Woo! Vampire movie! Oh, it's just going to be an entire vampire movie episode. And she also did a segment on the Cabinet of Curiosities. Oh, who who are we talking about here? Her name is Catherine Hardwick. Okay. And she directed Twilight. Yeah. <laughs> but that is not the movie that I want to focus on. You don't want to talk about Twilight? No, even though we all hated Robert Pattinson and now we all love him for two different <laughs> vampiric roles. Um, no, so she directed a movie that I haven't seen, that I, but, but I've heard is amazing, 13. Mm -hmm. But she also directed one of my all-time favorite like movies, and this movie is not by any means a masterpiece. It's really just like a fun, nostalgic movie that makes me feel good when I watch it. And that's Lords of Dogtown. That, this is a movie that I have heard so much about. 
And I have never watched it, but I have heard nothing but good things about it because I was friends with a lot of guys in high school that were really into skating culture. Mm-hmm. And so they were obsessed with this movie. I love this movie so much. I remember watching this movie. You know, I mean, the movie came out in 2005, it looks like. This was actually the movie that she directed before. She directed a movie in between that and Twilight, but she did Lords of Dogtown, then another movie than Twilight. Um, but Lords of Dogtown, um, uh, it basically is the story for those that are not familiar about the Z Boys. The um it's the uh, basically it's Tony Alba, Stacey Peralta, and Jay Adams, who were um skaters, but at the same time they were they were basic they were surfers. That was their main thing, is they were surfers, and then Skip Emblem, who was the owner of a local surf shop kind of caught wind of the skateboarding craze mm-hmm. rising up in in california in santa monica specifically so he kind of jumps into um the skateboarding gig because at this point skateboarding had just come out come out with the polyurethane wheels the ones that are pretty standard now um they had just come out with those so those you know you were able to do a lot of tricks that were like you can do the vert tricks to stick to the wall and so then he realized that these kids were really good at surfing what happens if we can incorporate the way you would tackle a wave in the street with a skateboard and there's a really genius line in the movie where they're like there's more concrete than waves in the world and they start you know getting and this is a true story um and this is the story of, uh, of these kids. And Stacy Peralta actually wrote the script for it. And, you know, Stacy Peralta went on to get Powell Peralta going. And he discovered Tony Hawk and gave Tony Hawk his first big break. Um, and this movie is just awesome because you get the skateboarding culture. You get the, uh, not only the skateboarding culture, but the music culture. I mean, there's this great uh, scene where there's a riot and this band is playing in the background and they're playing nervous breakdown by black flag, but the band is actually rise against the one performing it. Yeah, really? Wow. And this is before rise against was rise against, you know? <laughs> um, and you have a lot of cool little Easter eggs like that, but also something that I really admired is, and Catherine, the director said that she wanted this movie to feel authentic. Um, so they looked at all of the documentaries for the Z Boys, which is a documentary that that talks about this story. And she basically recreated a bunch of sets. Um, she recreated the dog bowl is what they call it, which is this this pool where they would skate. They would sneak into pools and they kind of started revolutionizing the way how they did skateboarding because they would during the drought in Santa Monica, they would clear empty all the pools um, to conserve water so then the kids would sneak in backyards and skate these you know these amoeba pools um, so she recreated a lot of these like 70 style pools that they were using and another cool thing that she did is that she told the the kids that were playing the z-boys they're like i want this to look authentic so you're gonna go to a skateboarding camp none of these kids knew how to skate <laughs> but she but she was like i want you to look as natural as possible so she actually got stacy peralta uh tony alba and jay adams the three skaters that they're portraying to come and teach these kids how to skate <laughs> that's insane and then tony alba went on and became um the first uh pro skateboarder to win like a skateboarding competition like a world skateboarding competition and 
yeah, they brought them to actually like coach these actors, these young actors on how to skate and how to do the tricks that they were doing in the movie. So it was it was phenomenal. Um, I love Lords of Dogtown. It wasn't very well received critically, but I don't care about that. I love it. No. Um, and I am a big fan of skateboarding. I don't skate anymore. I can I can still glide in my skateboard, mm-hmm. but that's about a, that's about as much as I can do nowadays. But I still hold on to that was an important part of me growing up. So for me, Lords of Dogtown is like. Um, I love that movie. I have to watch it at least once a year because I just I I love that movie so much. So yeah, that's why I wanted to focus on her. I mean, she, I don't I haven't seen the rest of her movies, so I can't speak for the rest of her movies. Um, but Lords of Dogtown is like one of my all time favorites, and so I had to give her a shout out. And I mean, to be quite fair, despite of how we feel about it, Twilight went on and became a huge phenomenon. Twilight is an it, it's a national phenomenon, and what and what it did for franchise filmmaking even like outside of marvel just like one of the trailblazers in taking a beloved young adult book property and turning it into something that like i worked at the movie theater during those movies and just like the people lined up down the hallways of the theater waiting for the midnight shows like it's insane the effect that it had on our culture yeah, and this is before, you know, the Hunger Games and Divergent mm-hmm. series. So, like, whether you like it or not, Twilight did kickstart something. 100% it did. And, and like, uh, regardless of the quality of those films, like, it's cool to see the... I was just looking at her IMDb while you were talking. The variety of films in her catalog. That's really... That's always a cool thing to see where you could kind of jump and do all different kinds of things rather than just be shoehorned into one category. And she did. Um, she did. She did do a a, sec- a segment of the Cabinet of Curiosities of Guillermo del Toro as well. So, that's awesome. So yeah, that's 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 my next pick. Well, that's a great pick. I my next pick is you and I are huge horror buffs, Ray, and I wanted to talk about someone who means a lot to me because I feel like she is a trailblazer in horror by doing something very different in a time period that I feel like it probably would have been very difficult to do this and i'm going to talk about amy holden jones and specifically the slumber party massacre well i knew this was going to come yeah so the reason why i wanted to bring up amy holden jones so she didn't direct a lot outside of this she's a big writer um but she directed some movie called love letters with um with jamie lee curtis Uh, nice and she directed something called Made to Order in the 1980s. So like, but she wrote all of the Beethoven movies, <laughs> which I all like all four of them. Um, but what I love about the Slumber Party Massacre, which I won't dwell on it long because I know I've talked about this movie a million times on the podcast. But, you know, when we talk about slashers as a whole, there's a lot of really subversive and intelligent slashers. Like you look at Scream, like throughout the entire history of the franchise. But in the 70s and the 80s, you know, Ray, you could get on Shutter right now and watch a slasher where half-naked teenagers just have sex, do drugs, and they get murdered. Um, and what I love about the Slumber Party Massacre is Amy Holden Jones kind of takes a look at the sexualization of women in that time period and kind of completely turns it on its head and says like, I'm going to make a movie that looks at all these stereotypes that exist in a slasher film and subvert all of them. Like the girls who are at this slumber party, they're all incredibly intelligent. They don't sit around and talk about 
guys the whole time there's an entire segment in the movie where they're waiting on their pizza to get delivered and they're talking about the dodgers game <laughs> like and and so you're watching this movie about these women that yes they're they're still young women they're still like in high school they they're like attracted to these guys they joke about it but like most of it is about female friendship and the way that it looks at sexualization in the movie even like the nudity in the film it's almost like poking fun at how overt it is in certain movies mm -hmm. and that's what i love about the way she structured that film and obviously the killer is this guy in a denim tracksuit who carries a very phallic drill that's like always down through his legs and always and like the dialogue delivered you know you talk about movies that are like really over overt now where we talk about how we hate being preached to sometimes like yeah. we love really intelligent movies about subject matter that's important but don't just like come out and say it so you think in the 1980s cancel culture or what have you or like even talking about assault towards women it wasn't like a huge thing there wasn't yeah. a lot of, but this villain in the movie says things like, come on, baby, you know, you want it. You want to take oh this. My you want... And it's it's like <laughs> at, in the 1980s, you watch something like that. And you're like, how much of this is this filmmaker hearing women's experiences and trying to put that to screen in a way that they knew male audiences all throughout the United States of America would go watch this movie. And that's so, interesting, yeah. so the movie really kind of opens up your mind to all of those things. And aside from all that, it's just a really well-made slasher movie. It's very tense. All of the characters are hilarious. There's this scene where the pizza delivery driver gets killed. His eyes got drilled out and he like falls in the living room and one of the girls opens the pizza box and starts eating the pizza she's like i was hungry i'm not waiting <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like i don't know it's so charming and fun and it's like everything i want in a slasher movie and so it was cool to see a woman in the 1980s direct such a prolific slasher film that kind of changed the game as far as to what these types of movies can involve. So, I, you know, I'm a huge advocate for this movie. I had to mention it. Oh, for sure. So well, that well, is, that's Amy Holden Jones. Well, we're in the horror genre. Um, this director, she's only directed two films. I've only seen one of the two. It's Jennifer Kent. <laughs> Jennifer Kent, ladies and gentlemen. I knew she did, it was Bob, she did the Babadook. Yes, I've seen both of her movies. I want to see The Nightingale. I hear is gut-wrenching and amazing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I haven't seen that, unfortunately. I will be uh, remedying that soon enough. But The Babadook is one of the best horror movies we've gotten in the, in the last, you know, 20 years. Yes, um, I, agree. I completely agree with that. Uh, I remember just watching it, not knowing what to expect. Um, mm -hmm. I just thought the cover would look cool, like a little creature with like the hands and stuff like that. And I ended up watching it and it was like psychological drama at its peak. Just like look at grief and what grief can cost you. And can it manifest itself? Um, you know, how your depression can be a literal monster mm -hmm. trying to, trying to kill you and how that, literal monster in this case depression can drive you to neglect even the the thing that's most important in your life which is your child i love that movie um i remember watching this movie and i was just like i couldn't stop thinking about it 
for a long time. Um, I actually, I, I wish I would have brought it out since we're doing uh, visual media today, but I have the pop-up book. So I have the, the vinyl and it has a pop-up book inside the vinyl. Oh, I have the vinyl too, <sighs> but I have the actual replica. Oh, you have the book. That's incredible. No, and I want to bring this up since we're talking about the Babadook. All the people that criticize that movie talk about that they can't stay in the kid. He's supposed to be annoying. He's supposed oh. to he's supposed to show how as a parent you could do everything right and that your child can still drive you insane even when you're trying to do what's best for them. And when people watch that movie and they're like, I can't handle it because the kid's annoying. And I'm like, he's supposed to add to that like level of just psychological distress that the film builds up so perfectly. Well, and, you know, having seen that movie through the lens of a parent, it really changes things because, you know, a kid, kids are not like... Something that I fight against a lot with people, um, people like will do these like Instagram and Facebook posts of them holding their child or he's so beautiful and he's so perfect and he's my little angel. But like kids can be jerks. They can. Kids can be awful. Um, Donald Glover said it best. What makes a good person a good person is empathy and sympathy. And kids don't have that. Um, so they can be terrible. And that's the thing is it's like, that doesn't mean kids are bad. It doesn't mean kids are like, don't have kids or whatever you choose to do with your life. That's up to you. But children aren't these perfect, well-behaved machines. And if you look, so it was interesting rewatching that movie through a different lens, because now I look at that kid and I'm like, when the kid is feeling neglected, he will throw tantrums and do whatever it takes to get mom to pay attention to him. Because kids don't know how to handle their emotions. Mm -hmm. 100%. So, 100%. Like, so that portrayal of that child, that's not very uncommon. <laughs> the end of that movie stuck in my brain for so long. Just thinking about where that leaves off is like so indicative of life as a whole, I feel like. And Jennifer Kent, she also directed a Cabinet of Curiosities episode. Oh, she, oh yeah, yes. she did. So like tying in all these directors that worked with Guillermo del Toro. But I will quickly mention, since Ray, you perfectly captured the Babadook and all of my feelings towards it. I think it's a perfect film. But The Nightingale, what was so interesting after watching that is we talked about horror on the show and like how you know i joked about the a24 movie room being a horror movie because it's real life horror the nightingale is the most real life horror imaginable a woman is brutally raped and she meets this indigenous person who she says will you help me track down and kill the person who assaulted me and he says yes and so the two of them go on this journey together to try to hunt down her assailant and it is just like one of the most brutal and unrelenting movies I've ever seen. It's so heartbreaking. It is so well written. But the funny part is with how realistic that movie is compared to the supernatural element of the Babadook, both of them are so emotionally poignant in that the Babadook uses that supernatural element to like elevate your emotions about that subject matter. Whereas the Nightingale just shows you real life terror and says, this is how horrifying life can be. And I think it's a testament to how great of a director Jennifer Kent is that she can do both of those extremes and succeed perfectly at both of them. Also, I don't, 
I don't know how it works in the in the Nightingale, but the Babadook, um, I mean, Essie Davis and her performance was like Oscar worthy. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if the Oscars didn't like shun so much on horror, she could have easily been a nominee. I'll never forgive them about Tony Collette still to this day. I'll never forgive them about basically anything that um what's his name has done, James McAvoy. Yeah. But I mean, I like I, I talk about it all the time. The the Lighthouse, Willem Dafoe's performance in The Lighthouse is one of the best performances I've seen in 30 years. Like in my whole life, essentially on this planet, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. And they didn't even give him a nod. It's They just hate horror. It's like, it has to be like a get out, like a trailblazing horror movie that like set the precedent for an African-American filmmaker to, to go into that genre. It's like, unless it's something that's really, I guess you could say boundary pushing, but unless it's something they consider pertinent, they just ignore horror. And the funny thing about horror is there's not a more feminist genre than horror. A hundred percent. I completely agree with you. I think that it's the female filmmakers. That's why so many of them we're talking about today are in this genre. It's just, yeah. it's just, there's a lot of them that work in horror because when, it, when they're writing movies, especially if they write films about trauma, it's easy to use um, horror as a way to elevate those emotions. So I love Jennifer Kent too. I'm right there on board with you. Nice. So who do you got next? So I've got another woman who is trailblazing in the horror genre and she's oh. a, She's a French woman and her name is Julia Ducournay and she has made the films Raw and Titan. Oh, I hear those. Both of those are wild. Uh, they're both incredible movies. Uh, they are, it's, it's hard to describe. Raw, I think, Ray, would be a very difficult movie for you to watch. I, I've but, heard. But I also think it's a very poignant film that you would very much appreciate. So Raw is all about a young woman who her family are all veterinarians. And she goes to veterinary school and they're all vegetarians. None of them eat any meat. And she goes to school and it's like the typical coming of age type of story. She goes to these fraternities. She gets bullied. And as the first part of her fraternity, she goes to school with her sister. They force her to eat a bug i'm pretty sure it's like a worm or something some kind of like thing that she's like i don't eat meat and they're like you have no choice so she eats it and after eating it she develops an insatiable craving for flesh which starts with her eating ground beef and then moves to her wanting to eat people and the entire thing is paralleled with her working at this veterinary clinic where we're seeing animals being used there as like tests for you know because they're trying to learn how to do surgeries on animals and all this stuff so there's obviously a very large commentary on that industry as a whole you can tell that she's very passionate about it but it's also just this really horrific film about something so uncomfortable like I'm a horror fan. Cannibalism stuff still gets me. It makes me so sick. I don't know what it is about it. That movie, there's a scene where she eats raw chicken breast out of this container. And I swear to God, even more than eating the people in the movie, it just like sent shivers down my spine. Well, something was bound to get you, Nate. Oh, I know, right? But (laughs) what she does so well, and in Titan too, is... She builds these really multi-dimensional characters that aren't necessarily the best people, but they also have good characteristics to them. So in Titan, 
Titan, the lead character, she's a model who has an obsession with cars after getting in a car crash uh, at the beginning of the movie. And by happenstance, she has sex with a car and the car gets her pregnant. And she's a serial killer. I can't make this up one bit. Uh, And so what happens is she's fleeing from the police And as she's fleeing from the police, she sees a wanted poster for this guy who has been missing his son for like, I don't know how long. It's like 15 years. It's been a really long time. And so she looks at all these photos on this board and she's like, hey, facially wise, I look kind of like this kid. So she shaves her head and starts portraying herself as a man And goes home to this guy who's a fire chief and says, I'm your son. And she starts living at home with him. Well, you have this weird thing about her with the car fetishism, but you end up getting this really beautiful human story about this guy who lost his child and rekindling his relationship with who he thinks is his child. While this woman who has never really had any sort of love or care or affection in her life finds this person who genuinely cares about her while she's going through this crazy circumstance that I can't even begin to describe. And that's what's so impressive about Julia to me is that her movies are so layered with like weird material that you're just like, what the hell am I watching? (laughs) But it's also really beautifully human. And I think it takes a really special director to be able to balance those types of tones. And she's just one of the best doing it right now. Another one who should have been nominated for Academy Awards that never gets nominated because she's in the horror genre. <laughs> yeah, that is the downfall of everyone when it comes to horror. Yes, but yeah, that's Julia Ducournay. She's only made two movies, but she's two for two in my book. Both of them are wild experiences. So for my next pick, um, this is a very obvious pick, but I kind of had to throw it out there because I think her movie Lost in Translation was amazing. Sophia Coppola is one of my favorite directors. She was definitely high up on my list, so it's fine. <laughs> I I so, love I love Sophia. Uh, as despite the fact that I I've seen almost every film in her catalog, I think there's one movie I have not seen that she's made. Uh, I don't think she's the most consistent filmmaker. No, but I think that her movies are always impressive. I'm always impressed with what she tries to do. Lost in Translation is my favorite in her catalog, though. I love Lost in Translation, and that's mostly the one I wanted to focus mm-hmm. on because I really like Lost in Translation. Um, fun fact: Are you familiar with the band Phoenix? Yes, she is married to the lead singer. That's hilarious. I cannot believe that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, she's married to um. Uh, to the lead singer of Phoenix. Uh, She's also a horrible actress. I've never seen her acting. acting You've never seen The Godfather Part 3. Fun fact, I have never seen any of The Godfathers. Yeah, neither have I, but I've heard that her, I've seen videos, her performance is pretty bad. But yeah, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of The Virgin Suicides too. I'm a huge fan of Marie Antoinette. Uh, I hated The Bling Ring. I loved The Beguiled. I, I, it's so weird thinking about her catalog because that like I'm all over the place when it comes to her movies, but lost in translation, that's like another her to me. That's a movie that like, it's almost a comfort movie, despite how depressing it is. Well, I mean, it's funny too, because, um, have you seen a very Murray Christmas? No. 
but I know she directed it. Yeah, it was a it was a short that she did. Well, a short as in like maybe like thirty five minutes. Of you just spend this evening with Bill Murray, and he's just alone on Christmas, and he's just kind of walking around New York. Um, and actually, Bill Murray has a scene where he starts performing a song with Phoenix. That's wild. I have to send you the clip, but yeah, Bill Murray performs with Phoenix on that on that on that movie. Um, she was also married to Spike Jones. That's what a life to live. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, I, I mean, love, I love, I love Sofia Coppola. I think. Well, I, I feel like you know a lot of people like kind of raised her their eyebrows. She's like, oh, she's a nepo baby because she is the daughter of Francis Ford, but. I think that almost makes it a little harder because you're living under the shadow of freaking Francis Ford Coppola. And I can tell you Roman sucks. So it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, I, I watched that glimpse into the mind of Charles Swan movie and it was terrible. It doesn't, it, that's the thing. It doesn't like, how are people surprised when children of directors want to be directors? They're around it their whole lives. And the thing about Sophia is that her movies are, you can always, like I said, I do not like the bling ring. I found that movie to be incredibly obnoxious, but like, I still see the passion in it. doesn't matter what she's making. I always see the passion in it. And Lost in Translation, my thing with that movie is take people from two very different age groups who are going through a very similar struggle where you're both just like, what is this life that we live? Why are like what finding importance in a day-to-day -day existence and just like trying to be excited about your life. You know, it's, it's a movie that constantly breaks my heart and not knowing what they, what they say to each other at the end of that film kills me constantly. Have you, um have you seen that episode of community where they poke fun at that? Yes. I love like Troy goes up to, uh, to Abed and say something and walks away. He's like, what did he say? He said, I hate it. I know you hate this when they do this in movies. Sorry, that got emotional. It just walks out of the room. So have you ever, you've never seen The Virgin Suicides, have you? No, I want so, to though. So that's based off of a true story at, or a base of a book, something like that. It's a, where, I know it's a book, yeah, but I where, wasn't sure. So essentially it's these young girls. I think there's four of them, maybe five of them. And they're in this like hyper conservative family. And at the beginning of the film, they tell you they all killed themselves at the exact same time. And so the movie jumps backward in time and you sort of see the trajectory of what sends them down that spiral to where they all decide they don't want to live anymore. And it's a beautiful movie. It's very funny at moments, but it's like, it drills it into your head at the beginning, like they're going to die. And so the whole movie, you're just like, when's this going to happen? And sort of seeing it through the lens of these really young girls going through like you know seeing their parents really batter them down with the religious stuff and tell them they have to live their lives a certain way and feeling societal pressure to act a certain way it, it's just i can't believe that's her debut like it's just an unbelievable movie and lost in translation wasn't too long after that um wow. but but throughout her career she's made movies that have really impacted me marie antoinette's just a blast if you want to see jason um schwartzman do a phenomenal role watch marie Antoinette he's amazing in that um but yeah I love Sofia Coppola I'm glad you brought her up because she's in my upper echelon of women directors she's like top three. Oh, wow that 
I, I nailed it right then. All right. So you 100% percent So this is where it gets difficult for me because I have a lot of really amazing directors on this list. But I do want to mention one because uh, she has only made one feature length film, uh, but she's made a lot of like... Uh, short films and I know she did an episode on the new Hulu TV show with Andrew Garfield whatever that show is about him being a detective that came out on Hulu not too long ago oh, um, under the banner of heaven yes um, but this director she is actually a uh, transgender woman and her name is Isabel Sandoval uh, and she made a movie called Lingua Franca that was beautiful. And I wanted to mention her today because, you know, when we talk about women, we're not just talking about cis women. We're, we can also talk about trans women. And this movie, Lingua Franca, she's actually the director and the lead actress. And she plays uh, an undocumented uh, Filipina immigrant who uh, is worried sick that she's going to be deported. And she's living in New York working in New York and she meets this guy who she starts paying to essentially get a green card marriage so that she can live in the United States of America. And she ends up meeting this guy who she actually starts to fall in love with. And it's this really difficult story about, you know, I mean, you think about the struggle that transgender people go through as far as identity as a whole anyway. So you have that as the central core focus of the film, but then you have this whole other thing about being an undocumented immigrant in the United States and like trying to get here and be able to live a life here and escape the life that you used to know. It's a really difficult watch, but it's also a very beautiful watch. And I think that it's really fascinating to see a transgender woman who comes from that background write such a like a really impactful story. And it's beautifully shot. The cinematography in it is amazing. Uh, and it'll definitely tear at your heartstrings. It's a it's it's a very difficult watch. Um, but I'm really excited to see Isabel make more movies because she's really talented. She actually got to do a Criterion Closet visit. They filmed oh. that not too long ago. Um, and it was really cool to see her on there and talk, talk about the movies that she really loves. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to mention that because I feel like with what's remaining on my list, I'm going to mention a lot of directors that are really well known. And I think Isabel is a director that deserves to be talked about more. Well, I got two more. Um, that nice. I to bring up. Yeah, go uh, for it. This one that I wanted to focus on, she, uh, I actually, again, um, I've only seen one of her movies, but she has done some, some cool stuff, it looks like. Um, her name is julie tamor okay julie tamor i haven't seen this one but she she kind of got a pretty big um boost in the industry after she directed frida okay who she was also like she choreographed a lot of it in frida mm -hmm. and was really involved with the music aspect of it but then and this is kind of me throwing punches at all of those dudes that when they see girls wearing band t-shirts they're like name one <laughs> name three songs um, this woman directed Across the Universe, which is one of my favorite oh, musicals. I have never seen Across the Universe, and I'm a big musical guy. I love Across the Universe. I mean, Across the Universe is a musical, and the whole story is told. It's a romance. It's a, it's a romance story, um, but it's told through a um, basically through a series of Beatles songs. And she compiled all these songs by the Beatles, um, turned them into musicals. And was able to like tell the story using 
cues from Beatles songs to tell this like romance of Jude and Lucy. They're the two main characters. And yeah, the whole story is just how Jude moved from England to the States because he was looking for his the father that abandoned him. Um catches wind that the dad lives out in um in the United States after the war and then he meets Lucy and it becomes his romance. Like it's like your standard romantic movie. But I just love that she was able to take all of these, you know, cues from from the Beatles and tell this story using Beatles songs. And, you know, you get all of these awesome like cameos too throughout it um, of different people in the industry. Uh, so, yeah, like I just I love that. And I love the imagery because she uses very like psychedelic imagery, very, very 70s inspired imagery uh and i just love it you know it takes place around that time frame too when the hippies were uh, rising up against the the vietnam war and it, it's a great film i i really love it it's one of my favorite musicals uh and yeah uh, for those that think that girls can't uh mess with some classic rock well this one did it and she did it right did they use my favorite Beatles song start me up no what about let it bleed let it bleed let it bleed (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i can't name a single beatles song no i'm just kidding i love the beatles but i i honestly it's a it is a travesty i've never seen this movie they they use my favorite beatles songs hey dude hey No, this one I'm actually going to push up to the top of my list because I love the Beatles. And I remember when I was in high school, because I think this came out, well, like 2006. Yeah, something like that. I was in high school, too. Everybody in high school watched this movie and I'd see scenes from it and I'd be like, oh, my God, that looks incredible. And I don't know why, because I know this is the same director that made like Titus. Yeah. with anthony with anthony hopkins and frida like you said like i i, I need to check this one out 100 percent. it's cool like i said it's very like 70s psychedelic you even get, you get a cameo from bono if you're into that sort of thing yeah he forced <laughs> songs on our ipods <laughs> uh, fuck you bono no uh so for my list since you said you had two more with the one you just mentioned i'll mention my two favorite female directors because i have a huge list we could probably have done a five-hour episode on this oh Um, sure but i have two directors who are women that i would argue right now are my absolute favorites they kind of teeter which one takes the top spot but i respect the hell out of both of them so the first one ray is someone who you've seen one of their films and that is the director, Lynn Ramsey. Oh. And Lynn has directed You Were Never Really Here, starring Which Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, a film called Morven Caller, and a film called Ratcatcher. I have seen three of her four movies, and every single one of her movies I love. And Ray, I know you can tell, be a testament to the people about You Were Never Really Here. Like, what an insane movie. Great. Uh, the book is awesome, too. She did a really good job adapting that book. It's so insane because you take, like, a really hardcore topic, like child sex trafficking, and you give us this character who's hunting down sex traffickers, but... Instead of it just be like a John Wick or whatever type of we're going to hunt him down and kill him, you make his character this really multidimensional character that's struggling with his own depression and like the things that he's gone through in his own life and what has what has 
taken him to this point that he wants to do this like obviously any of us given the circumstance would want to save children from this this horrible fate that they they have in this circumstance but like to know that he's like going after him with a hammer <laughs> like oh that and i love the way the action scenes are filmed in this movie oh yeah because there's something like you know i know that you're supposed to be like rooting for the guy beating the sex traffickers down yeah but it's not like those violent moments are not like yeah you're killing the perverts they feel heavy they do and a lot of that too is the johnny greenwood score which i think Mm -hmm. really accompanies the film very well that last scene in the diner in this movie dude like my mind when i watched that i was like this is filmmaking at an 11 like this is just like someone who has shocked me. Cause were you re- were you ready for that scene? Cause I was just like, no. what the hell? Well, I remember seeing it in theaters and it's just a very quiet, beautiful moment. Mm. And then it happens that like I don't really react to jump scares. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I'm like, ah, eh, whatever. This one actually it gets it's not a jump scare. It's just a very shocking thing mm-hmm. that you see happen without giving away any spoilers. And I was in the movie theater and there was like two or three people in the movie theater. Not a lot of people showed up for this one. And I was like, whoa. But, uh, and it's an insane movie. And what I wanted to talk about Lynn, because I think it's so fascinating, is kind of the trajectory of her career. Because right before that she made We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is the true life story of Ezra Miller. (laughs) Uh, that, That movie is also based on a book about a family who has a child that has tendencies that might make him look like he's a serial killer or something, but it's not like you're not watching the kid go out and abuse animals or like, you know, the, like all the steps that serial killers take. It's much more of like the struggle of these parents, Tilda Swinton, especially to like come to terms with the fact that they have nothing in common with their child. And are we trying to raise our child the best way that we possibly can? And like, when tragedy will eventually strike which it's like looming the whole film you know something's gonna happen you ask yourself like how much of it is my fault did i do enough to get him help did i do enough of the right things and so that movie and you were never really here are very elevated in a sense that it's like really intense I've never seen Morvan Caller, but her first film, Ratcatcher, is about this young kid who lives in, um, I can't remember what country it is, during this trash strike, where there's just trash lining the streets everywhere, and like the places they live are all really dilapidated and awful, and his family's all not really present, and he's friends with this young kid, and at the beginning of the movie, they're out playing in the middle of this lake they're not supposed to go to, and his friend drowns right in front of him, and the entire film is him coping with the fact that he probably could have saved this kid and didn't and how he sees that the what he did and how it impacts the whole community he lives in while also dealing with his own personal issues of his parents don't really care about him they're kind of just like we've got three kids and we do the best we can but like what are we supposed to do? Like his dad's a deadbeat alcoholic. And that movie is such like a subdued character study. It's so quiet and like impactful in a way that like, I love those types of quiet movies, but we need to talk about Kevin and you were never really here are like high octane, very like intense. Like you said, that scene at the end of that movie is just so jarring 
where it's interesting to see someone come from a very subdued place to making these films that have subdued moments, but that are much more like in your face. Right. So that's Lynn Ramsey. I love her. I think she's such a talented director and I'm surprised with such a prolific career kind of staggered over the years that she's only done four movies. Um, I was going to bring her up, but I knew you were going to, and I kind of wanted you to because you have more knowledge of her, her films because I've only seen the one. Um, I think I know who your number one is going to be. Yeah, I know you know who my number one's going to be. <laughs> I guarantee it. But yeah, I honestly, like, I love Lynn Ramsey. She's fantastic. So I'm going to give my my last, the last one I wanted to, to focus on. And this is actually not a director. This is a composer. Nice. And I always celebrate this woman because I think she has done so much for for film in general, obviously. But I feel like she has done so much for film for female um, composers and that I'm going to butcher her name. But I'm going to try my best. I have it pulled up here. Uh, Hildur Gudnadotir. Yep, I would have I would have butchered that so bad. You did the best you could. That was actually pretty. <laughs> that was actually very impressive. <laughs> um, for those that don't know, she is the composer for the her biggest accomplishments right now as composer. As composer, she did Sicario, Day of the Soldado, mm-hmm. Joker, Tar, Women Talking, and Chernobyl. Nice. Um, and she is the first the first Icelander to win an Oscar ever. Um, And back in 2000, the categories of original dramatic score and musical comedy were combined into one whole category for just best original score. And she is the first woman to win an Oscar for that category since that switch. Nice. Um, I love the music that she does. She, it's really cool because she has toured with, um, animal collective and sun O, which are couldn't be more polar opposite musicians uh sun O is like this doom metal musician and and uh, animal collective is like this experimental indie band but she is a cello player predominantly and she was a cellist a touring cellist for them and then she started doing like a lot of work like she won a bunch of awards for chernobyl then i mean she won so many awards for Joker, um, and rightfully so. However, you feel about Joker or Chernobyl, her music is amazing. And Agreed. I shout out to Johan Johansson, who actually hired her a lot to do a lot of music. You know, Denis Villeneuve had her be a cello, a celloist on Sicario. Uh, Inaritu had her do some work on The Revenant. And then Johan Johansson would always have her work with her. Um, they would always work together. And Johan Johansson was set to score Day of the Soldado, but he actually passed and but almost like handed the baton to her to That's score cool. it. And I mean, she did Joker like a. I know you're not a big fan of Joker, but you know that scene in the bathroom when he I love the, dancing. I love the music in that scene. She recorded the music first before they shot. So he wow. really is dancing to that song because her music was so fundamental to that movie that Todd Phillips wanted to use it to record some of these scenes. So she had actually recorded that before having seen the film. That's crazy. I, I liked the music for Tar and Woman Talking a lot. I have to check it out. Um, but yeah, I love uh, Hildor. She is incredible. I 
will check out her music regardless of the movie now because she's just impressed me so much. And there's not a whole lot of like, and if there is, please educate me for anybody listening. But to my knowledge, there's not a lot of big female composer names. There's, I, I've yet to hear like the John Williams or Hans Zimmer, a female composer. So I champion her so much uh, for what she's doing for the film composers. Um, and I hope that she's an inspiration to more female composers out there because, you know, we can clearly tell from her body of work that we're not messing around here. She is going to be the next John Williams, you know, for female composers. So I'm Which really, is awesome. I'm really excited. Because it is, like you said, a lot of a lot of the composers that are really well known that are women are like one offs. It's like they do one movie and mm -hmm. you don't hear from them again, which is really disappointing. But no, I agree. Her impact on the industry is insane. So I love and I just I couldn't talk about the impact of female in film without talking about her. That's amazing. Well, you already know who I'm about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Lay it on you, uh, Celine Sciamma. Everybody knew I was going to talk about Celine <laughs> Sciamma. She's my favorite female director. Uh, she's made five films and I've seen four of them. I don't know why I haven't seen the one movie that she's made, but obviously everyone knows Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, but she's also made Petite Maman, Water Lilies, Tomboy, and the only movie that I have not seen from her is called Girlhood, I think. Girlhood, yes. Yeah, Girlhood, I have it pulled up here. They were all on the Criterion channel, and I watched all of them, and then they pulled it right before Girlhood left the Criterion channel. So I didn't get a chance to watch it while I was on there. But the thing I love about Celine, obviously, you know, if you know anything about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you know, like, how much of a champion movie that is from the LGBTQ community. It's such a powerful romance that's written so beautifully. The cinematography is like on another level. Um, Ray, I think the thing, you've never seen Portrait, right? The thing you will appreciate about that movie is the use of music, how minimal it's used, but how important the music is to the overall plot of the film. The music is one of the central crux moments to the entire movie. But what I love about Celine's whole catalog, with the exception of Petite Maman, because it's a much more subdued story that's more about familial dynamics, but almost every one of Celine's films is about some struggle with either sexual orientation or gender identity. So like Water Lilies is about a young girl who's in high school who starts to gain an attraction for an older woman who is in her high school, older teenage girl that's in her high school. And like how she's belittled if she looks at her that way, the way kids treat kids when they, you know, are, don't understand their identity. They don't understand their orientation. Um, Tomboy is about a young girl who does not like dressing up like a girl. She wants to wear more of, of young boys clothing. And she ends up going out in this new town she's living in. And all of the kids that are around her just assume that she's a boy. And so she just plays it like she is a boy because she wants to be a boy. She doesn't want to be treated like a girl and so there's such a beautiful story of identity in that and it's handled so delicately obviously portrait two women being in love in a time period that you'd probably be killed 
if you were told this these people that you were in love and so those movies all have emotionally impacted me so much because as you guys all know ray and i both huge champions for lgbtq rights and the lgbtq community and i love filmmakers who are able to make really poignant subject matter that's also not just like preachy beat you over the head it all is very real it feels just like a snapshot of life like it's so impressive to me what Celine pulls off. All of her movies are so beautifully human. And then like her newest film, Petit Maman, it's about a young woman who, or a young girl, she's like seven or eight. Her grandmother passes away and her parents go to uh, clean out her grandmother's house. She goes into the woods and meets this other girl who's her age. Well, you find out through a set of circumstances who that other little girl is. And it's mind blowing. It's almost like a children's fairy tale, but it's so beautiful. And it's it's a relationship dynamic that everyone can understand. It's about a mother and a daughter and a grandmother and a granddaughter and all of these familial dynamics and relationship dynamics that we can all understand, but brought into film in a way that's so beautiful and poignant. And her movies like the the credits roll and i don't stop thinking about them for weeks after i watch them it's just like there are certain directors we talk about like that all the time ray that like you watch their movie and you just think about it forever after it's over and every one of celine's films i've watched they've stuck with me for so long after i've watched them and she is someone who i will support her for the remainder of her career i just think that she's so amazing i i was really impressed when they went to go get the awards for portrait of a lady on fire in europe and they nominated roman polanski and the whole crew left they all got oh, wow. up and left they said we don't want any part of an award ceremony that is going to nominate roman polanski for an award and i think that takes a lot of balls in this type of yeah, an oh, industry for sure. especially for a woman who i believe that she identifies as a part of the community you could correct me if i'm wrong but i think that she identifies as a member of the lgbtq community and to be a person in that place that has this directorial power and her actresses did it as well to say like hey fuck this we don't want to be a part of it he's a known rapist like we don't want to be a part of this award ceremony that's recognizing that and i i think that takes a lot of guts to do something like that in that type of a position especially when you're working with producers and people who could say well we that was a charade and we're not going to give you money or anything like that so i think that aside from just being a great director that she's a great person who stands up for what she believes in and that's someone who i will always respect so celine skiyama top tier of my list she's incredible man and there's so many people that i think of like so many women that i can think of just off the cuff right now like you know you have jane campion you have the wachowski mm. sisters you know you yes. can go on for days uh i wish even had uh, more time well like for me charlotte wells that made after sun this past year like what an incredible debut film from uh, from a female director that like shook the world. I feel like there's so many like that. Uh, Karen Kusawa who did uh, Jennifer's Body and The Invitation. Like there's a ton of directors. I had a whole list of like 30 female directors, but we well, would go on for days I, yeah. and days and well, days. Well, that's what I yeah. that's what I said. I mean, just the Wachowski the Wachowski sisters and mm -hmm. like what they the phenomenon they created with the Matrix. I mean, mm -hmm. there's 
We can go on for days. <laughs> What's interesting to me about the Matrix too, now thinking about the Wachowskis, is how indicative there's a lot of themes in that film that really parallel to transgenderism. And when you think about it even more now, it's kind of eye-opening that they made oh, yeah. that movie at the time they did. And what a revolutionary franchise. I still need to watch the most recent one. Yeah. Because I heard too. it was I heard it was great and I still haven't seen it. I heard it was bad but i heard that it was like bad with like a little like wink like we yes. know this is bad and we're doing it on purpose and this is also a great moment too and i want to say this now that we've finished our discussion if you guys out there have directors female directors that you're like oh you guys didn't cover this or we might not know who they are so go on our yep. you, our instagram when we post the episode and leave us a comment and let us know who your favorite female directors are because ray and i are the type of people we want to learn more we want to know more similar with our black history month episode i want to know as many female directors black directors um uh, LGBTQ directors, all these so that I can build and culture myself more. And so that that's the whole meaning of this is for us to look at you guys and say, well, here's some we know, but we want to know more. Yeah, we want to do more because I mean, spoilers, we are eventually going to do an LGBT episode. We're going to do a Hispanic heritage episode. So we want more. Keep giving us more. Yes, 100%. Like Ray and I are to the point now where we just want your recommendations. And uh, it's, and speaking of women, we might as well do this now, Ray. We've got another interview. <laughs> How? How do we keep getting interviews, Ray? What this what is, kind of power I credit, am I pulling? I credit I credit our um I say our it was just the two of us. <laughs> I credit our our uh, editor extraordinaire Nate here for getting us all these interviews. Yeah, it's crazy. Like honestly, I've just been reaching out to people, and they're so kind, and they just want to talk about movies. Which, if you guys out there know any filmmakers that want to have this conversation, Ray and I are open to talking to pretty much anybody. Uh, obviously, we're trying to talk to directors that we really respect their work and we want to promote them, and so. The, the next episode you guys are going to get, we are talking to director Mercedes Bryce Morgan, who she actually just directed the film Spoonful of Sugar on Shudder, <laughs> which I can't so, I wait mean, for you to see. I can't wait for you to see it, Ray. It's unreal. Go, I mean, to everybody listening or watching, go get Shudder already. Jesus, yes, all of our interviews. Like, I was surprised. I'm like, Uncle Peckerhead was never on Shudder. Like, how? <laughs> But it could easily be. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and like at this point, if the CEO of Shudder does not know how much like free name dropping we do for that streaming service, for the love of God, give us a sponsorship. <laughs> we're, we're talking to all your directors. We're giving you free publicity for Christ's sake. <laughs> no, but we do. We do love Shudder. And um, I watched Mercedes film last week, the day it dropped on Shudder. And oh my God, like... It's this crazy psychosexual movie with an amazing lead performance that it's so surreal, but it's also violent and hilarious. And it's like every type of genre smashed into one movie. And the cinematography is like chef's kiss. It's beautifully done. I can't wait to hear your reaction, Ray. I think you're really going <laughs> to like it. It's a really good movie. I'm excited. I'm really excited. Yeah, so we're going to talk to Mercedes, so watch Spoonful of Sugar before our episode, so that way when we talk about the movie, because we're going to have 
it's going to be an episode that we're going to have a lot to talk about because the movie has a lot to talk about. I'm still thinking about a lot of the things. The last 10 minutes of that movie, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, holy crap. Maybe I'll have to watch it this weekend and you and I will have to get on the phone and talk about it so we can have our thoughts together before Dude, we interview her. Ray, there's so much to talk about in that movie. There's so many themes. The psychosexual power dynamics in the movie are so weird. It's like, oh, I'm excited. I'm, I can't wait for you to see it. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so I can't believe we're talking to Mercedes because I loved this movie so much. I'm really excited to chat with her. So watch Spoonful of Sugar. And so now... Ray and I are doing soundtrack of the week. All right. So soundtrack of the week. We're here. We've got some soundtracks of the week. So Ray was talking about female composers. Mm -hmm. I had to bring up one of my favorite female composers here uh, who has a limited career, but has done some really great stuff. And what is it? It's Mika Levy's Under the Skin. What? <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly like... Also on this beautiful translucent red vinyl. Um, I'm a huge fan of this movie, obviously, but I don't think this movie would work half as well as it does without, without this the score. score. <laughs> this score is like, I listen to this all the time. It never gets out of my rotation. I love how strange and ambient and ethereal it is. It's one of like up there with Johan's uh mandy score it's one of my favorite science fiction scores period it's just so beautifully done it's so simplistic but the songs like they just haunt my dreams consistently so yeah uh the mika levy score to, to under the skin everyone needs a copy of this even if you don't love the movie you need a copy of this score because the score is so damn good remind you of all those shots of scarlett johansson in a van <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what you got for me, Ray? I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna I'm gonna use two today. I'm gonna do two. Oh, go for it. You can do two. I'm fine with that. The first one is not a female composer, but it is about one of the films we talked about. Nice. That is. I don't own it still, and I need it. You were never really here. Composed by Johnny Greenwood. And don't even. Is gorgeous. Help me find that, Ray. I need that. <laughs> I own like every Johnny Greenwood score except for that. You know, it's funny. I actually saw the, I actually found out about the movie through the score. I picked up, I saw the score go on sale. I'm like, that looks cool. I wonder what, what that is. And I listened to the score and I loved it. And I order it. And then I realized, oh, this is a movie soundtrack. That's insane. I'm and then looking... I saw the movie. And then the other one that I wanted to focus on, I just talked about her and that is the score for joker oh i like that variant a lot yeah it's a nice purple variant um the music is incredible like i said this is one of those scores kind of like you're under the skin score even if the film wasn't your cup of tea the music for this movie is incredible yeah and yeah so joker by i'm not gonna try to pronounce her name and butcher it again no that scene that scene where he's like dancing on the staircase that was my favorite scene in the movie. I love it. And I love the score. I love the music. Like I said, even if the movie wasn't your cup of tea, which I I can understand why, um, but the music, top notch. One of the, that was my favorite score that year too when it came out. So I was like celebrating jump off of my chair when I was watching the Oscars, watching her win that. Are you excited that for Joker 2 Electric Boogaloo? 
<laughs> I am. You know, I, you know, I am. Starring Lady Gugu as the fifth iteration of Harley Quinn. Hey, <laughs> I'm there. I'm there for Mr. Phoenix. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, that's our soundtrack of the week. And like we said, we've got uh another wonderful interview that we're going to be doing next week. I'm really excited about it. Uh, this has been a really great start to the year for the podcast and Ray, I'm pretty sure we're getting close to our one year anniversary. If it hasn't already happened yet. No, I think we're getting close. Yeah. Uh, it's got, it happened after you, we started podcast after you graduated. Yes. So we we're getting close when the one year anniversary happens, we'll announce it. But like, it's crazy to think we've been doing this as long as we have. And I, I still get, just as excited about it as i did the first week we did it it's like every every week having these conversations and talking to you and like now adding in this whole new thing of talking to filmmakers it's like this is the whole reason we ended up doing this in the first place well just as a little quick side note um uh we so i work four ten, so usually friday is my day off but they usually do overtime days on fridays like it's been kind of like at first uh, my boss would be like can you work fridays and i'll be like no i'm recording with my friend um this podcast and you know at first he looked at me weird but it's kind of cool that like almost a year later he was like can you work friday and i'll be like no i can't because i'm interviewing a director <laughs> that's the same thing like when i'm talking to my boss and i'm like i can't cut i can't do anything from this hour to this hour because i'm interviewing a filmmaker <laughs> and it's like it sounds so much cooler when you say it that way when you're like i'm interviewing a director so yeah we'll be doing we'll be doing that interview and then we'll have another episode idea cooked up for you by then but until then watch spoonful of sugar and we will see you next time bye Bye, everyone. Goodbye.